Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's again go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful if we are indeed called by your name, because we we do recognize that it is the working of your love, the working of your, your gracious almighty power that has caused us to be those who have been delivered from the domain and the the captivity of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the dear Son. And Father, what a marvelous, what a marvelous thing you have accomplished in sending him The Word made flesh, the Son made one of us that we in Him would become sons and daughters indeed. And I pray, Father, that you would help us in this time to see what you would have us to see, to understand what Paul meant when he he told the Corinthians that These things that have happened in the past, even as we are considering the great and mighty circumstances, the mysterious circumstances of Moses' life and and his work and ministry to the sons of Israel, these things that happened in the past, Paul says, occurred for our instruction. They have been written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And I pray again that you would help us to understand what that means. Not simply that we would find uh, a moral example in Moses' faith or the faith of the sons of Israel, or that we would draw from those examples in that sort of a way, but that we would see, as Paul did, that all of these things were testifying of and and building the case for, preparing for the coming of the one in whom all of the promises of our God are yes and amen. I pray that as we consider This Hebrews text again today, Father, that we would, even as Chris read from 2 Corinthians 3, that we we would see this Christ, the one in whom all of the glory of our God is bound up, the glory of our God that is in the face of Christ our Lord, the one regarding whom by your spirit we ourselves are being conform to. We see him as beholding in a mirror the glory of our own face as we are being transformed from glory to glory. 
Capture our hearts, capture our minds. Father, do a mighty work in this time. Let us be changed by what we consider and hear. We seek in all things to grow up into Christ who is the head. And we pray for your work and your grace, your mercy in that regard. So bless our time together as we continue to worship you in the name of the name above every name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we continue to work through Hebrews chapter 11, um, I have been moving slowly, dealing with each of these uh, individual pieces separately. And the reason is that even though we could move very quickly and kind of skim across the surface somewhat, recognizing again, as Paul said, that, that all of these things that occurred in what we call the salvation history, the outworking of God's purposes in the world, that in, in a significant way had Israel at the very center of those purposes, we can't really understand the Messiah himself, and we certainly can't understand who we are in him unless we can see him as the one whom God promised the one who has inaugurated the fullness of the times, the one, as I said, in whom all of the promises of God are yes and amen. And so as we're considering these these, uh, examples of faith through Hebrews chapter 11, I pray my goal is that uh, with each of these things, we're, we're building in our mind a greater sense of who this Messiah is and the purposes of God that he had ordained in him towards which he was working in all of these things that we call Israel's history and life with God. That's my intent, and if we, we finish up this section, uh, finish up Hebrews 11, and you have a fuller, more glorious understanding of Jesus the Messiah, what God has accomplished in him and who we are in him, uh, then I'll feel that we have been successful in this endeavor. But the next example of faith that the writer draws on, and and this one too implicates Moses, although the writer doesn't specifically mention him, uh, but this one follows very closely from the previous one that we considered, the Passover episode. Uh, This follows very closely after that, both in terms of uh, time and the movement of God in the salvation history, which is the uh, great event that we call the parting of the Red Sea, the the deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea. And in a way, there's a kind of ramping up here, because if the Passover was a testimony to the faith of Moses, certainly the Red Sea episode was a greater testimony. In fact, even though the faith of Israel is really kind of more collectively mentioned here, Israel's faith in that incident stood very much upon Moses' faith. But that's the last of the things that that directly implicates Moses as we move forward. So I'd like to read with you. We'll be considering verse 29 today, but I'd like to again just set the context Context by backing up to verse 23. This is Hebrews chapter 11, if you'd like to follow along with me. The writer says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a distinctive child. There was a distinction about him. 
And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. A very important section that we've considered By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's wrath, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them, the people of Israel. And then verse 29, by faith they... By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Again, typical of how the writer treats these episodes, he just gives a very brief summary statement. But he's writing to Jewish believers, a Jewish audience who know the story very well. And I think probably among the things that we've considered so far, this is probably a story that most of us know at least somewhat well. If we've grown up in Sunday school, if we've been a part of the church for any length of time, we we know the story of the Red Sea, the great miracle of the parting of the water and the people going through on dry land. But that story is very foundational to the point that the writer's making And what I want to do today is not state the obvious, but I want to draw out some of what I think are the important things that are drawn out from or or presented in the text as this is recorded for us in Exodus 13 and 14. And then give the lion's share of our time to considering, okay, so what? God did this great, miraculous, mighty work, uh, you know, somewhere around 3,200, 3,500 years ago. That's all fine and good. It shows God is powerful. It shows God can bring people, you know, through the waters. It shows God is in control of nature. Okay, let's move on. I want us to consider what is really the significance of this in terms of the point that God was making in this episode. If it's true... If it's true, as Paul says, that all that has happened in the salvation history, if all that has happened throughout the history recorded for us in the scriptures is for our instruction, in what sense is that true? If it's true, as Jesus said, and as he, by the Spirit, enabled the apostles and the other Uh, evangelists of the early church to understand that all of the law, the prophets, and the writings testify of the Messiah, and they preached Christ from the scriptures, which means the Old Testament scriptures, how does this, where is the testimony of the Messiah, this work that God would ultimately do in relation to this great episode at the Red Sea? So that's where I want to spend the bulk of our time. But again, just to give some of the details of the, the uh, episode in Exodus 13 and 14. And if you want to flip back there, I'll be reading little snippets from this. 
And I don't know whether any of you have done this, but I hope that even as we've been moving through chapter 11, you're going back and reading those passages from Genesis and Exodus to see what the writer is drawing from and to even put his own statements and and their meaning into the context of the scriptures themselves. Very, very important. And even more broadly, just the recognition as an aside building on that, if it's true that from the Bible's standpoint, the Old Testament or the scriptures of God and the New Testament is the inspired witness to how the scriptures testify of the Messiah and have found their fulfillment in him, we should always be reading the New Testament writings through the lens of the Old Testament storyline. And that's certainly the case here. So the first thing that I want to mention, uh, again, by way of of some important details in this, is that the Passover event, and particularly the, the death of the firstborn, that final plague that God said he was going to bring on the house of Egypt, and with that, the Israelites would be delivered, that plague took place in the night, And in the morning, the Israelites departed Egypt. Pharaoh said, that's enough, go, leave. And we don't know exactly how many Israelites there were, but if there were 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, there almost certainly was well over a million people that left Egypt, a massive multitude of Israelites. But as they depart... The first point that I wanted to make is that God himself leads them. Yes, Moses is in a sense the leader of Israel, but God says, I will go ahead of you in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you move by day, you'll see the cloud in front of you. If you move by night, you'll see a a pillar of fire that will lead you. But God is the one leading them. He didn't just give instructions to Moses, and Moses said, okay, let's go this way, let's go that way. The people were following God's manifest presence in this cloud by day and fire by night. And why is that important? Because of the route that they took. Now, if you know where the land of Goshen is, if you, if you know how Egypt is set up, uh, when you get up towards the Mediterranean, there's the Nile Delta there. And it's a very low-lying, kind of fertile, watery plain. And Goshen would would have been off to uh, the east side of that, but up again in the north of Egypt. And God is leading them out of Canaan, or out of Egypt, not just to set them free from their bondage, but to bring them to himself, to bring them to the land of Canaan. We've seen again that this liberation was God saying, I've remembered my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And bound up in that covenant was the promise of God to bring them to this land that he would give to them where he would dwell with them and they would be his people and he would be their God. So he's bringing them out of Egypt towards the goal of Canaan. And the most natural way to go would have been northeast up along the Mediterranean coast, right? But God doesn't lead them that way. Instead, he leads them southeast towards the sea, the Red Sea, 
and towards the wilderness. He doesn't lead them in the way that you would expect, not the shortest way, not the easiest way. He leads them towards the wilderness. So God is leading them, but he leads them in a difficult path. And in Exodus 13, the explanation that God gives is, I would lead them that way, but that way will be through the land of the Philistines. What today is is Gaza on the coast, that region of the Philistines. You had the five kings of the Philistines later. But today that would be what we would call Gaza, that area in southern Israel right on the coast. And God said, I would lead them that way, but I'm, a, I'm afraid that when they see, when they encounter the Philistines, a very militarized, formidable foe, when they see warfare on the horizon as a potential, they'll be afraid. And they'll turn around and they'll head back to Egypt. So he says, I'm going to lead them towards Sukkoth, towards that area, down towards the sea. So the Exodus account gives the impression that this is because God is thinking ahead, and if we go through the land of the Philistines, then the people will be afraid and they'll want to turn back. But there are other larger, more significant reasons that aren't mentioned specifically there, but are nonetheless a part of the story. And the first is that if you recall, when Moses first had his encounter with God at Mount Horeb in the land of Midian, remember when he goes up to the mountain and he sees the burning bush and God encounters him there, God says, when you bring the people out, you will bring them back to this place to worship me here. And the implication is, and we see it as the text moves along, but the implication is that is the place, that place of encounter, Mount Horeb, is going to be the place where God is going to ratify the covenant relationship with the Abrahamic family. The covenant that he made with Abraham and Abraham's descendants, Israel has been, in a sense, away from the Lord for a long time. They've forgotten him. He has to make himself known again to them through Abraham. But he also intends to ratify this covenant relationship with them. And that's what we call the law of Moses that comes at Mount Sinai. You see, by Exodus 19, they arrive in that area at the mountain of God. And there God enters into this covenant relationship with Abraham's descendants, as he had promised to Abraham. So the law of Moses then, what we call the Old Covenant or the Sinai Covenant, is nothing but the formalizing of the Abrahamic covenant relationship with Abraham's descendants. So that's the first reason why God would lead them towards the land of Midian, lead them towards the wilderness and towards the mountain where he intends to make this covenant relationship formalized with the people of Israel. But we also, this is more local to this particular incident we're considering, God also intended to do one more great 
overarching work of power and deliverance. He's taking them to the sea towards the wilderness for a very specific reason. He intends this work of power and conquest and deliverance, a work by which he will finally and fully complete his triumph over Egypt and its gods. The plague of the firstborn, the tenth plague, associated with the Passover sacrifice, the plague of the firstborn had broken Pharaoh's will, but this final work will break his power. It will decimate his power utterly. And there's some question whether Pharaoh himself actually died in the sea in what we're going to see. But this work that God is leading the people to will be the end of Egyptian subjugation. It will be the end of Egypt's power. It will utterly decimate Pharaoh's power and bring his kingdom to its knees. So God leads them southeast towards the sea. And if you know the Red Sea, it, 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 you have the sea itself and then you have two fingers that stick up like this. And it's the Sinai Peninsula in between them. And Egypt is over here. So he leads the people down towards the sea. And God knows that Pharaoh has already regretted letting the people go. And he has spies watching their movement. So God is leading them. He's leading them towards the sea. But he also has them kind of double back. They go here, then they, then they double back. And, then they're, and, and he's trying to create the impression with the Egyptians who are watching them that they're, they're just wandering aimlessly. They're not going towards Canaan. They're going towards the wilderness and they're just wandering aimlessly. And I think the point of that is that Pharaoh, as I said, already regrets the fact that he's let his slave force go. And now when he hears from his spies that these people are just wandering around aimlessly, they seem lost. That would only encourage him all the more to go after them and retrieve them. They don't know what they're doing. Obviously, their God is not leading them. Maybe he's abandoned them. They're ripe for the picking. I'm going to chase them down and I'm going to bring them back. And that's exactly what you see happening. Pharaoh, when he hears that they're wandering around, when he sees that they're going down towards the sea, he starts to prepare his army to go after them. And in the meantime, while he's preparing his army, God is leading them towards this place of encampment. It says opposite Baal Zephon. And there's disagreement as to where these places are. I'm just going to say there's two general views. The one is that the Israelites crossed over the, the westernmost finger of the sea is the Gulf of Suez, the, the eastern finger is the Gulf of Aqaba. This isn't a geography lesson, but it's important nonetheless. The one view is that they crossed over from Egypt over the top of the Suez Gulf 
and went down along the Sinai Peninsula, along the Gulf, to the bottom of the peninsula. And it was in that area that they camped and crossed the eastern finger, the Gulf of Aqaba. The problem with that view is that's a trek of about 275 miles or so. And with that many people on foot, if you could even cover 20 miles a day, you'd be doing pretty well, probably more like 10 to 15 with all the animals and children and everything. So that's a long trip to be going before they cross the sea, and that's also a long way for Pharaoh to be pursuing them. The other view is that they came southeast and crossed the Gulf of Suez a little bit south of the top of it. The Suez Canal goes through the top of the Gulf of Suez up to the Mediterranean, right? I think that's the right view for various reasons. And I'm not going to belabor that, but I think that's what's happened. But God has moved them to a place... And there is an area about seven, eight miles south of the tip of the Gulf where there's a promontory area, a little piece that sticks out, a high place that sticks out towards the water, and there's mountains around it. And the reason I mention that is God directs them to a place to camp where there's no escape. They've got the sea behind them, and they can't go God puts them in a place where they're stuck. There's no natural remedy for them. And they don't know it, but Pharaoh is amassing his army and they're, putting, they're, they're getting their chariots ready and they're racing across to go and intercept these people and bring them back. So this is where they're camped. And while they're camped there, at some point, they can see, whether the cloud of dust or whatever, but they can see these chariots, these armed chariots coming towards them, and the people panic. And the first thing they do is start railing against Moses. Why have you brought us out here to die? We told you, we wish you would have just left us alone when we were in Egypt. Why have you brought us out here to die? If you'd have just left us alone, everything would have been fine. And at the same time that they're railing against Moses, the text says they're also crying out to God. And the irony in that to me is that, and this is why I laid that foundation, they're railing against Moses, but it was God who had brought them there. And they knew that. It wasn't just a man, Moses, saying, God told me, God showed me, listen to me, I'm going to lead you. They were following a cloud of fire, or a cloud of, uh, a pillar of cloud by day. God was leading them. So in railing against Moses, they're really railing against God at the same time that they're crying out to him to deliver them. And it makes me think of, of... in, in James, the way he treats this idea of how trials become temptations. Trials are challenges, things that come and that present themselves and that trouble us or that afflict us. 
And James says when these things come, it requires the wisdom that comes from faith to be able to benefit from them and have them have their perfect work and produce the kind of perseverance and growth according to God's purposes that he intends. But where that wisdom isn't present, trials become temptations. And he means specifically a temptation in the sense of fault-finding with God. Why have you done this? How could you do this to me? Why have you brought this evil upon me? And this is where the Israelites are. They've just witnessed this mighty deliverance through the, the God's death angel going through the whole land of Egypt and taking all of the firstborn of the livestock of Pharaoh's own house. And they're a few days out, and now they're faced with a very sticky situation, and they're saying, Why have you brought us out here to die? Why have you brought us out here to die? Well, Moses rebukes them, and he commands them that they have to stand fast and watch, wait, see the Lord's deliverance. How is he going to deliver us? They're closing in on us. They're an armed military power, the greatest military power at that time in the Near East, for sure. We've got mountains around us. We can't flee. We've got the sea behind us. We're dead. Where's deliverance going to come from? And Moses is saying, this God who brought you out of Egypt by this mighty hand, he's not going to let you perish here. You need to trust him. Well, if you look in chapter 14 of Exodus, I just wanted to point out this uh, Chapter 14, verse 15 says Moses, at the same time that he's telling the people, he's also crying out to God. Verse 15, the Lord said to or um, he said, the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. They'll go through on dry land. And I just wanted to point that out. if, If you look at verse 15, it can seem as if God is saying, you know, why are you calling out to me? This isn't my problem. This is your problem. Or something to that effect, that God's displeased with Moses petitioning. But I think the idea is more a call to action. Moses, you need to now stop pleading with me and move the people forward. I've heard you. As the people have been pleading, you've been pleading, I've heard you. Direct them to move forward towards the sea. And you are to lift your staff with your hands stretched so the people can see you and I will divide the water and they can pass through on dry land. And verse 17, and as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them and I will be honored through the Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. Now, I think this God was giving this instruction and dealing with this as the night was beginning, you know, the day was coming to an end. Because he tells Moses to 
hold your staff up through the night and an east wind comes and parts the sea and builds a wall of water on either side. And in the, in the morning watch as the dawn is breaking, that's when the Egyptians are starting to go in after them. And it says, at daybreak, God told Moses, hold your staff again over the sea, and all the waters came back. So this whole thing is happening at night in the dark. But when God tells, tells them to do this, he has his cloud associated with the angel of the Lord that's in front of the people move behind them and form a barrier between them and the Egyptians who camped. It's becoming nightfall. And in the ancient world, it wasn't a 24-hour world. You didn't fight at night for the most part. War stopped when the sun went down. Nobody could see anything. So the Egyptians camp. They know they've got these people trapped. They just make their camp. But the cloud comes around behind them and forms a barrier protecting the people. And it says it also gave them light. So in the middle of the desert, in, in the dark night, the cloud of God's presence provides light for the people. And as Moses is holding this staff, the waters are separated and the people in the night start to move through. And it must have been a significant opening to get a million plus people through that sea. You know, whether it, depending on if it's this spot that I mentioned, it's probably about four miles wide at that point to get all the people through there before the sun came up. But at the first watch, when dawn is is beginning, it's at that point that God now, in a sense, releases the Egyptians. And the Israelites, I think, were still moving across, which would have given them even more incentive to go after them. Because they knew, I mean, you can't see something like that and not say the God of the Hebrews is doing this for them. He's protecting them. He's providing for them. And as long as they're in the seabed, the waters aren't going to come back. We can go in after them. And that combined with the fact that, again, God wanted all of the Egyptian army to be in that small surface area of seabed with the waters parted. God then begins to confuse them He confuses their movement. He causes the chariots to get stuck and to go kind of aimlessly, to give time for the people to finish getting through on the other side. And the Egyptians know. They say, the Hebrews' God is fighting for them. Let's get out of here. But they can't. There's no escape for them. And when the last of the Israelites go through, the water collapses back on them. The waters collapse back on them. Well, that's the story. And then what you see, the, the way that the, the text presents it, all of this activity, you know, this kind of convulsing, pulsating wall of water on either side. It's dark, it's night, you know, it's all this confusion and activity and chaos. And now it's perfectly calm. The seas become calm. And the Israelites are on the seashore trying to gather themselves, you know, after an event like that. Can you imagine going through that, what you would think, trying to process all of that? And they begin to see the dead Egyptians washing up onto the shore. 
And what results from that is that Moses and the sons of Israel begin to sing to the Lord. This is chapter 15 of Exodus. If they believed God before that he was going to fulfill his covenant oath to their fathers, that he was going to deliver and preserve them, if they believed him before, they were utterly convinced now. He was indeed the God of their fathers. He would surely fulfill all that he had promised. And this comes out now in the song that they sing. And I just want to read through this with you because this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And they said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Now, I want you to listen to this language because it's going to be important. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my deliverance. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will extol him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army has cast into the sea. The choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic, In holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, this is the idea of covenant faithfulness. This is goodness that is bound in a relational commitment. You have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you've guided them to the holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. And the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. This is going to be important even when we get to Rahab. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. See, they're, in a sense, singing about the effect of this. The Canaanites don't yet know. The Moabites don't yet know. But they will very quickly. They understand. They're singing about the implication of what God has done and what the nations will see and how it will affect them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over. O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. 
Yahweh will reign forever and ever. There's the song that they sang. And as you've heard me say so many times, this whole thing of the Exodus wasn't about liberating these people from bondage. It was, but it was about God fulfilling his promise to gather and take a people to himself. That where he is, they will be. They will dwell with him in the place of his sanctuary. This wasn't just setting them free. This was gathering them to himself. A kind of prototypical recovery back to Eden and the garden of God and the mountain of God. In their song, they say nothing can distract him. Nothing can deter him. God wields his invincible power against all enemies and forces, not just arrayed against him, but against his purposes, against his covenant intent, against his will and the people through whom he will accomplish his purposes. That's the context of this. And this song came to be immortalized as the song of Moses. The song of Moses, the song of deliverance. Well, here's my basic point. Just as the deliverance itself presaged or was a kind of foreshadowing of another deliverance that would come, that the prophets will later speak about another Passover, another deliverance, Yahweh arising to end another exile, so also the song that commemorates that triumph is itself a foreshadowing. This song, this poem, if you will, is a foreshadowing of another poem, another song that is to come. The song of Moses would one day find its own fulfillment, just as the event that it commemorates would find its own fulfillment, The song will find its own fulfillment in the song of the Lamb. In Revelation, John writes, in chapter 15, he says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues. The first Time that something is called a plague is the plague of the firstborn in Exodus 11. A plague by which God will deliver his people. Here are seven plagues which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. The wrath of God in what sense? Against that which opposes his purposes for the world. For his creation. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God. Now, this conjunction and here should be really, I think, rendered as, as an ascensive. The bondservant of God, even the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses has become the song of the Lamb. And listen to the language and compare it with what we saw in Exodus 15. Great and marvelous are your works, 
O Lord God the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The song of Moses becoming the song of the Lamb. So God preserves Israel at the Red Sea because of the larger purpose that he has for that people. It's not that Israel is irrelevant, but God had promised to Abraham that through his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. He would accomplish this work through Abraham and his people. The election of Israel was the election to be the instrument through whom God would accomplish this great and mighty purpose. And it's in view of that promise of a seed who is to come that God preserves Abraham's offspring. He brings them through. Paul says that in in his uh, epistle to the Galatians. When God made his covenant, his promise to Abraham and his seed, he didn't say seeds as many, but seed as one, referring to the Messiah. If you belong to the Messiah, then you are children of Abraham and heirs of the promises made to him. The promise of a seed. And what the story wants you to see is that Israel would become Israel indeed. Israel would realize its sonship in truth through a particular son to be born to it and into it. Israel would become Israel indeed through a unique Israelite who would fully and faithfully embody Israel's own identity and calling. Which is what? Son, servant, disciple, witness to the nations. If you say, what is Israel? That's what it is. Covenant son, servant, disciple, witness to the nations. And that was God's plan from the very beginning. It was his plan from the beginning. But it presupposed the failure of Abraham's family. And this becomes more obvious as you move through the story. God's purposes, to put it most simply, God's purposes to restore and renew his world depends on Israel being Israel. Because he's bound all of those purposes up in the family of Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the story shows very quickly that Israel is not going to be able to fulfill its identity and calling. And therefore, God will raise up another from within Israel who will fulfill that calling. And I mention that here even because if you look... It's, it's, it's so sharp in the Exodus text. You come off of this great triumph of God and the people rejoicing and celebrating and manifesting this great faith and commitment that, yes, this is who this God is, and yes, we will follow him in this exultant song of praise. And immediately in chapter 16, as they leave from the Red Sea, they start grumbling and complaining and disbelieving. And from 16 to 19, when they arrive at the mountain of God, it's just a series of episodes of unbelief. We don't have water to drink. Where's food? Why did you bring us out here? We're going to die. How could you do this to us? 
And the point that the text wants you to see is that for all of what God has done and for all of their claim of faith, they will not be faithful. Israel will not be faithful to their God. And even when God ratifies the covenant with them, it's the same thing. If you will be faithful, if you will keep my covenant, then you will be a kingdom of priests. But they will not. They will not. And you see that even in a kind of hinting way in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. because, And that's why I wanted to read it. If you, if you know what they sing... The whole thing is focusing on God's covenant, God's faithfulness, God's power, God's commitment, God's chesed, his covenant integrity, not a word about them and that they will be faithful and that they will follow him. It's kind of conspicuous by its absence. But then, as I said, in chapter 16 of Exodus, you see it starting to play itself out. There's not a word of their own fidelity to God in the Song of Moses. And what the song hints at, the subsequent storyline makes explicit. The son, Israel is my son, my only begotten son, let my son go. Israel, the son, will not prove faithful. And so you see Moses' second song that comes at the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is when the sons of Israel have finished their 40 years. They're, at, they're on the plains of Moab. They're ready to cross into the land. And it's a rehearsing of their life with God. Deuteronomos means the second law. Uh, that's a, that's the, the Greek rendering of it. But the idea of Deuteronomy is a rehearsing of Israel's Torah and, and its relationship with God and what lies ahead for them and what God requires of them. And in Deuteronomy 32, you see God instructing, or third, I think, um, yeah, beginning in 31... God tells Moses, I'm going to teach you this song, and then I want you to teach the people this song, another song of Moses. Very different from the song we see in Exodus 15. I'm going to teach you a song that you're to teach the sons of Israel. This song, too, celebrates Yahweh's covenant faithfulness, his integrity towards Israel, all of his mighty works respecting to Israel, but it sets that in contrast to the unfaithfulness of Israel itself. And the calamity that's going to come on them in the future. It's an indictment, it's a song to to indict them and to put in their minds a sense of the judgments that are coming. And you say, why a song? How do we teach kids to learn things? Often with songs, right? That's how I learned the books of the Bible as a kid, you know, was in that little song, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? Do you remember that little song? We learn through song very well. We remember things. And God says, this is a song that you're to teach the people. And here's what it says in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. This is Hebrew poetry. 
as the droplets in the fresh grass and the showers on the herbs, for I proclaim the name of Yahweh. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. He's a God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous, upright. But they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay Yahweh? O foolish and unwise people, is he not your father who has bought you? He made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and he separated the sons of man and set the boundaries of the people, he he called this people to himself is the point that the song is making. According to the number of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in his desert land, in a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him. He brought him to him. He spread his wings. He caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. Who? Jacob, the people of Israel. Jacob became Israel, right? And there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. This is God's integrity and goodness and fatherliness towards the people that he called out to himself. Verse 15, but Yeshurun, a term for, again, the Israelite people for Israel. Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations, provoking him to anger, sacrificing to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known. You neglected the rock who begot you, forgot the God who gave you birth. And God saw this and spurned them. Because of the provocation of his sons and daughters and said, I will hide my face to them from them. I will see what their end will be. They are prefers generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. But then look at verse 23. I will heat misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine, consumed by plague, bitter destruction. The teeth of beasts I will send upon them and the venom of crawling things of the dust. Verse 28, for they are a nation lacking in counsel. There is no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? And this is what they're going to see, right? They're going to get into the land and they're going to be put to flight because of their unfaithfulness. Joshua will know it. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine in retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. The day of their calamity is near. But then look at verse 36. It instantly flips. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone, there's none remaining, bond or free. He will say, where are their gods? Where are the ones in whom they trusted, in whom they sought refuge, who ate their sacrifices, drank the wine of their libation? Where are these gods that they served and trusted and gave themselves to, thinking that they would deliver them? Let them rise up now and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he. There are no gods besides me. I put to death. I give life. I've wounded. I will heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. 
If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. But then go down to verse 43. This is where it ends. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and for his people. A very different tone than the first song of Moses. An indictment and a promise that desolation and judgment are coming because of your rebellion and your unfaithfulness. And yet, Though the sons of Abraham will not keep covenant, I will prove faithful. I will prove faithful. Israel will fail its identity and vocation, but Yahweh's pledge to Abraham will stand. Yahweh's pledge to Abraham will stand. I will arise. I will vindicate. I will judge. I will heal. I will restore. And all the nations will see and will celebrate together with the household of Israel. Yahweh himself already hinted at here, this early in the text. Yahweh himself will see to it that Israel fulfills its identity and calling. And how will he do that? It's mysterious at this point, but he will do so by embodying Israel in himself. In that way, Yahweh will fulfill both sides of the covenant. He will be a faithful husband and father. He will be a faithful bride and son. He will embody Israel in himself. He will come and be Israel for the sake of Israel and for the sake of the nations. And how will he do that? In incarnation. You look at the way the gospel accounts start and they emphasize that. Son of Abraham, son of David. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us and we beheld his glory. Not the Shekinah in the tabernacle, but the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yahweh himself, when he arises, when he does this work of vindication, and healing and restoration. He will do it by embodying the Abrahamic people and the Abrahamic seed and promise in himself. He will fulfill the covenant as both parties. And in that way, he would unveil the mystery of his promise throughout the scriptures to return to Zion, to overthrow Rahab, Rahab, not the person Rahab, different idea, different spelling. Rahab the dragon. This is very much tied into the Exodus thing and the Red Sea thing as well, because in the ancient world, the the view of creation was a, a, a cosmic, chaotic sea presided over by the 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 sea monster, the Rahab. The idea of of a tumultuous arrogance, rebellion, unsettledness, agitation, tempestuous arrogance. And in the ancient creation myths, you see a god, whether Marduk or whatever, who arises and who slays the sea monster and brings order out of chaos and settles the world and makes it at peace. 
And the ancient Israelites, I'm not saying they were holding to ancient myths, but they would have looked at even their God and what he was doing, even in relation to Pharaoh and to the sea and to this deliverance. They would have seen it through those creation stories that were a part of the culture they were a part of. If God were to come and speak to us today, he would speak in the language and the cultural forms and norms and structures that we know, wouldn't he? And he communicated who he was to Israel through the things that they knew, through the things that were a part of their culture, things that they understood, the stories, the myths, the things that were a part of their own experience in the world. And that's why the prophets say that God will again arise as he slew Rahab the dragon. And he brought order out of chaos and he delivered his people and he brought them through. So he will again arise and do that work. That's why I say God will again come and, and, and show how, what the prophets meant when they said that Yahweh would arise and he would overthrow Rahab and establish his kingdom in a son of Abraham and David. I'm going to give you all an assignment for this week. I want you to, in terms of these things I've been talking about, I want you to go and look at Psalm 89 this week. A psalm that is celebrating, again, God's faithfulness that is bound up in David and his intent to establish this kingdom. But read Psalm 89 through the lens of the things that we've considered through Exodus. But I want to just close and then pray by looking at uh, how Isaiah treats this idea. I mentioned before that the Passover was itself a prototype, and God had said that there will be another one to come. It became more clear through the prophets that there was going to be another day when God would arise, when he would slay the dragon associated with Egypt, associated with Pharaoh. He would deal with the chaos monster, the chaotic creation, and bring order and peace to the world. And he would do so in connection with a servant that he would send, a son of David, a messianic worker, someone who would accomplish this great triumph. And in that way, Yahweh would also return. He would again inhabit his sanctuary. He would dwell in the midst of his people. And he would rule from his sanctuary as Lord of the world. These themes are all very much woven into Isaiah's prophecy, but just a few verses from chapter 51. In the very next chapter, it's going to, we're going to be turning to the servant again and then another servant song, which we all know Isaiah 53, but 54 and 55 as well. But listen to this from chapter 51. God says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who would be right with the Lord. You who seek Yahweh, listen to me. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. What's the rock from which they were hewn? Look to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father. And to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he, Abraham, was one, I called him. This is the Abrahamic covenant. I blessed him. I multiplied him. Indeed, Yahweh will comfort Zion because he's faithful to Abraham. 
He will comfort all her waste places. Her wilderness he will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving sound of a melody. All of this is prefacing what he's going to be saying further about the servant. Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear, O my nation. For a Torah instruction, truth will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my deliverance has gone forth. My arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my deliverance, my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my Torah, Do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them like a garment, the grub will eat them like wool, but my righteousness is forever. Rightness, truth, integrity, conformity to God's own purpose and will, that's the idea of righteousness, and my deliverance to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Wasn't it you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord will return. This is all in the context of the fact that Israel is going into captivity, then Judah will go into captivity desolation, the end of David's kingdom, the end of his throne. All of that is on the horizon, and yet he says the ransom of the Lord will return and will come with joyful shouting to Zion. Everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? That you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth. The God of creation who's committed to his creation. That you would fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. Where is the fury of the oppressor? The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am Yahweh, your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. It's not the chaos monster who does it. It's me. I have authority over my creation and I am working for its good. I have put my words in your mouth. Here now, masculine singular, again, building the case for what's to come. Yahweh says, I've put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand. Reminiscent of 49. I'm not going to go back and read it, but go back and read the beginning of Isaiah 49. The servant who is Israel on behalf of Israel and on behalf of the nations. I've covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. The promise to Abraham. 
This is the way in which the scriptures build their case. And when Jesus comes into the world, he can say, if you knew the scriptures, you would know me. If you knew the scriptures, you would understand that I am he. This is how the song of Moses has become the song of the Lamb. Yahweh, the mighty deliverer, the one who fights against the opposers of his will and his people and his purposes, the one who triumphs, the one who overcomes the chaos of disorder and curse and renews and restores all things, the one who says, I will come, I will clothe myself, I will arise, I will do it. I will embody the Abrahamic people in myself, and in me they will find life. In me all things will be renewed. And Paul says, therefore this God who's working all things after the counsel of his will is working towards the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth in the Messiah. I hope that puts a song in our hearts. Let's close in prayer. Father, we can never make too much of the Lord Jesus. It is not minimizing you to make much of him. For you have even said that you are glorified and you are honored and you are revered and you are worshipped as the God who is true when we know you as you are in Jesus our Lord. In fact, we cannot even know you. We cannot be in any way rightly related to you. We cannot worship you except as we know you and relate to you and worship you in Christ our Lord. He is the fullness of all that you are and by your infinitely wise and powerful design, we as your church are the fullness of the one who fills all in all. Father, this gospel is so glorious, and I pray that you would press it into our hearts very deeply, that you would give us a heart, a longing to grow with respect to these things. As Paul could say, to truly see the glory of our God that is in the face of Christ, the glory into which we ourselves are being transformed by the Spirit who is the Lord. I pray that we would truly be Christian people. People who know and manifest and reveal and testify, not just by our words, but by our very existence of the truth of the resurrected, glorified Messiah. The one who is king over all the earth. The one who one day will take all things up in his grasp so as to transform and renew and perfect all things, that our God will be all in all. Give us this glorious vision and let it inform the lives that we live day by day, the way we think, the way we perceive, the way we judge. May we be truly, Father, those who bear the fragrance of Jesus the Messiah in every place, in every circumstance. And may our hearts exult in him. May the song of Moses that has become the song of the Lamb, the song that fills the worship 
of the hosts around your throne as John perceived them. May that be the song that fills our hearts. A people marked by joy. A people marked by peace. A people of faith. A people who trust and know and serve their God. We ask these things, Father, earnestly seeking them from you according to your design for us and for your church and for your world. And it's in Christ's name that we ask. Amen.